Welcome to the World Wild podcast, hosted by me, Miles Irving, and I'm thrilled and delighted to be able to welcome our guest this week, who is Fred Provenza. Now, Fred has been studying the feeding behavior of grazing animals for over 40 years now, um, and his findings have yielded really powerful insights into ways we can rectify problems related to human diets. And he's the author of a book that's entitled Nourishment, which without reservation, I consider be, to be the most important book ever written about food because it draws together a vast breadth of evidence um, in order to argue a case for restoring health to our bodies and communities and landscapes simply by trusting the wisdom which is resident in our DNA and resident in our physiology in order to reconnect us with biodiverse landscapes through food culture. I mean, I'm trying to summarize a very deep and complex book there, so I hope it doesn't sound too uh, complicated. But really, it's a book about the benign wisdom which is resident in landscapes, um, land-based communities and bodies. That's, that's my best effort to, to, to sum up your book, Fred. Uh, so I've got Fred on the, on the line there, obviously. Um, hello, Fred. Hello, Miles, and wonderful to be with you. No question about it. Welcome, welcome. So, Fred, I've I've just attempted to sum up your life's work so far, but perhaps perhaps you could tell us a little bit of your story as a way into exploring some of these some of these um, wonderful ideas. Sure, I I very much appreciate what you had to say about the book, and it it is a complex book, many many levels to it, and so it's it's difficult to I think even for me to to try to summarize it. Let me give you just a little bit of background and yeah. and uh, some thoughts on on how I think about nourishment that really relate to what you're saying as well. Um, to me, in one sense, nourishment is really about the mysteries and wonders of a visit to this planet. Right. I wrote the book after I retired. Uh, about 10 years ago, while my wife and I were living in the peace and tranquility of the backwoods of Colorado, we were wow. 12 miles in on graveled road as far back as, as we could go. That sounds beautiful. In a word, it was a meditation. We were living at 9,500 feet elevation in the transition zone between the conifer and aspen forests and these expansive parklands of a place called South Pack Park. Mm. We were surrounded by 14,000-foot peaks um, to the south, to the west, to the north, and to the east, these beautiful, beautiful mountain ranges. Mm -hmm. We were immersed, basically, in the beauty of nature from the exquisite arrays of different plant species to the, to the insects, birds, small and large mammals that make the backwoods there their home. So mm -hmm. it was a wonderful time and setting then to reflect on the mysteries of a universe in the process of consuming itself from galaxies and stars in the cosmos to herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores above and below ground on Earth. You know, you think about the fact we live in a universe with some 200 to 300 million galaxies, hmm. each with billions of stars. The center of each galaxy is a black hole in the process of consuming the galaxy. We live on a planet where life lives by consuming itself okay. below and above ground. Yeah, yeah. So throughout the book, uh, I used comparative food selection, nutrition, and health of plants and animals from insects to humans as a way to reflect on the mysteries and wonders of existence in the process of consuming itself. The first three sections of the book, Dining with Change, Dancing with the Wisdom of the Body, Savoring the Artist's Palate, 
deal with comparative food selection, nutrition, and health, uh, and trying to understand why creatures do what they do and uh, what that means. And then the last two sections of the book, Grappling with Uncertainty and Fading into Mystery, focus more on the mystery and wonders of the visit to Earth. Mm. So nourishment was a way then for me to give thanks for a moment on Earth with all its horrors, beauties, wonders, and deep mysteries. So that's, you know, that's where I was coming from as I thought about uh, and wrote about there in that beautiful setting of the backwoods of Colorado was just a way to reflect on uh, on all, all, all of the all of the things related to this planet and the galaxies and cosmos and so forth. Yeah. And, and how did you get started on that journey in the first place, Fred? With with um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it has been time spent studying, as I said, the behavior of grazing animals. Right. That's that's taken up a lot of your time over the years. And right. You know, and the start, I think, is as a little kid, Miles. I, I was just fascinated, absolutely fascinated with 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 creatures you know with living creatures as i went to school i was awakened to plants and the amazing world of plants and the beauty of plants and as you know there's a chapter in the book that talks a bit about plants and plant their behavior and the fact that they were the first biochemists on this plant their amazing complexity the consciousness yeah. of plants and uh, and the the relationship then between uh, soil and plants and plants and herbivores and then plants herbivores and human beings just evolved out of out of all that over over the many years uh, it became more formal in terms of a research program over the last forty years where we were really trying to mm. understand not what animals do you know up until the time that we began our work there was a lot of study of what wild domestic animals do? What do they eat? Where do they go? And those sort of things. Yeah. Our whole program was designed to try to understand why do they do that? What, why, yeah. why do, what underlies the behavior of animals? And I think that's what allowed, um, as we went along, allowed us to generalize then to uh, everything from insects to human beings. You know, on the surface, a person might say, well, what the heck is a goat? eating brows in the southwestern United States have to do with a human being uh, right. foraging in the UK. It's the why that connects those. It's the right. whys and the processes that underlie the behavior that, that connect all those things around the globe. Mm. The thing, the thing that, that, that got me hooked into your work, um, it, was, um, it was just kind of a random thing of stumbling across a paper when I was um, studying in the library. Um, but the thing that hooked me in, which I, I think is pretty central to your, um, your work and, and, and that research you're talking about there, you, you made a statement about, um, animals, no palates connect. This was it. Palates connect animals with landscapes through flavor feedback mechanisms. Now I have to say, when I read that, it was, it was a strange experience because it really resonated with me, but intellectually, I, I didn't understand what it meant. You know, I had to trawl my way through the paper and read it over and over to actually get what you were saying there. But it, it had such resonance when I read that statement. Did you want to you want to say a bit about? Um, I mean, that's that's a very central idea, right? That there's a connection between animals and landscapes through the uh, flavor feedback mechanism. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I'll have to say, 
uh, I won't take the time to go into all the background of how we got started on this notion of flavor feedback linking palettes with landscapes. Uh, it's in the book, as you know, and but the point I want to make is, as you said, for us, when we first started to explore that, it was literally mind-boggling to, to realize what was, was happening there. Um, our experience of eating is of the flavor of food, and if we like a food, it tastes good to us. If we don't like a food, it tastes bad to us. And yeah. so that's as, as far as we, we think about those things. But we think what it's our just research about the taste buds, basically. We, it's right, just, it's just, the, taste, yeah. uh, the odor and taste, which merges into flavor, is our experience. And, and it's powerful in guiding us. It, it, it's, it's nutritional wisdom manifest. Mm. But the key on this feedback part of things it has to do with with why we eat it all and where food goes. And if you think about it long enough, you realize food goes to cells and mm. organ systems, including the microbiome. That's what we're feeding. And right. the notion of feedback is that those cells and organ systems and the microbiome are feeding back through neurotransmitters, peptides, hormones, there are a whole bunch of nerves like the vagus mm. that underlie this. That's the way that they, they feed back to change our liking for food as a function of what they need, what they need for, from a nutrition standpoint, what they need from a medicinal standpoint. And so yeah. feedback is fundamental. I, it, it is, it's, it's quite an idea and it's quite an idea to wrap one's mind around um, and when we were first realizing that feedback was mediating what goats and sheep and cattle were doing, it, it was mind twisting. After mm -hmm. 40 years, I don't even stop to think about any of that anymore. But, you know, over the years, we showed for energy, for protein, for ratios of protein to energy, for minerals, for vitamins. And then this whole array of secondary compounds, we just showed over and over again through carefully controlled experiments, that feedback is really fundamental to liking for the flavor of food and cattle, sheep and goats. And then there's a literature on humans that I explore in the book that that really supports that same notion. So what you've got then is that is that there's there's there's, there's two layers to it. One is the conscious and the other is the unconscious. Right. So when we taste, we experience that very conscious sense of liking but there's a there's a whole kind of depth underneath that which is that we somehow know unconsciously i like this but that's been that situation has been uh, the result of all of these cells and organ systems um basically giving things the thumbs up as it were saying that's good i like that or, or conversely because you mentioned a lot in the book about the, the sort of adverse reaction when when you feel sick after eating something you'll then you 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 can't override it you you told a story about eating roast beef after after drinking poison water and you got sick now your your body just wouldn't allow you to override that even though you found out afterwards that the reason you'd been sick was because you'd you'd drunk bad water but your body linked it to the f most recent food you'd eaten so you you couldn't eat roast beef for several years absolutely the case and yeah. so important what you're pointing out and, and doing such a nice job of, of how you're articulating that, Miles. 
there's this whole uh, unconscious, non-cognitive part that's really the level that, that all of this is operating on. Uh, it's below the, the level of conscious awareness. And uh, mm. I often ask people, you know what, in, after, after they eat a meal, what enzymes are you thinking about releasing to digest the food you just <laughs> ate? And everybody laughs because you don't, you don't do that. It's it happening automatically. And it's the same with this feedback and changes for uh, yeah. at this subconscious level for gui guiding our need. What we experience then is just what you say. Oh, I like it or I don't like it, and you know, and and uh, those sorts of things. But it, it's this it's this powerful uh, non cognitive part that's really underlying that. And if we start thinking about this stuff too much, we can muck the whole system up. Right. So you know, the example, there are many, many examples that I use in the book, but, um, and that's where the culture, if the culture isn't enabling the wisdom of the body, if cultures aren't, aren't set up to, to really try to encourage and enable this, this wisdom that's in us, um, then you can get this strong cultural influence adversely influencing uh, what we think, this whole idea yeah. of nocebos and placebos and food hexing that I talk about that, uh, you know, it may or may not be what your your body at, at this non-cognitive, intuitive uh, wisdom level really needs, but uh, you're listening more to the culture than to your own body. I yeah. use gluten often as an example here in the U.S., and Certainly, there are people who are sensitive to gluten. So, I, I mean, no disrespect for that. That's absolutely the case. But there are a lot of people who aren't sensitive to gluten, but believe that they are sensitive. And, and when make people do, yeah, exactly. When people do clever experiments on that, they're they're very quickly able to show uh, that. Uh, you know, even a food that has no gluten in it, they tell people it has gluten, they, they get sick after they eat that. So it's, 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 the, it's this very interesting interplay between the non-cognitive, intuitive, wisdom part of the body, and then this cognitive part that can either align with that or it can yeah. um, muck it up. And, 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 and I suppose the thing is just trying to sort of tie a few things together, like the, just, just basically what the what the thrust of your book is you've you've seen how functional this is with 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 animals that are free to graze on biodiverse landscapes and there's a few factors there there's like that they that they that they've been there for a few generations that the uh, the wisdom being passed on especially by the mothers in the herd is not been interfered with so when that thing has been allowed to develop on a landscape with a herd and not been disrupted, that it's incredibly functional, that they, they really do know exactly what to eat and, and they thrive. They're able to self-medicate and, and, or even, you know, prevent illnesses through, through what they eat. And I guess your, your great thought, as far as I can see, is that you're extrapolating from that to human diets and saying, well, like we should be doing the same, but then, Pulling back and looking at, well, are we doing the same? Is so, well, we're not, and why not? And the fact that there's so many factors in our industrial food system that are basically sabotaging that—that's the thing that gets me. Like you, you articulate that so clearly, but it's 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 maddening to think there are so many little things which which end up undermining our our, uh, our body's ability. They just sort of, well, as I say, sabotaging that system one way or another. Absolutely. You, uh, 
think about it as really the these uh, this wisdom, this flavor feedback wisdom, the importance of biodiversity of wholesome foods, whether you're an herbivore or a human, those social, cultural, transgenerational linkages that become fundamental to this. Really, we they've all been hijacked. They've been hijacked yeah. by modern food systems, um, yeah. and it's. Uh, when I say that too, I, I don't think so much of blame when I say those kind of things. Get, you know, we could say what, whatever we want and certainly there, there's, but it's just, it's amazing to step back and think about it, just reflect yeah. without any of that involved of, of how, how Without necessarily pointing the take, finger just to say, this is what's happening, yeah. Right, right. And to think about how we've taken what were formerly wholesome foods growing in landscapes. For instance, here, um, where, where my wife and I live now in Montana, in the summer and late summer and autumn, when you go hiking in the woods, you, you can find so many different species. It's easy to find 10 different species of wild berries that are growing Wonderful. from choke cherries and service berries to grouse wortle berries to buffalo berries. And you know, the Native Americans used all those as part of their, their fundamental part of their diets. They used to make what's called pemmican here. And it was dried meat and fat combined with these with these different kind of berries, incredibly wow. nutritious kind of combinations of foods. Well, when you think about then what we've done to the, the plants, whether that's vegetables or fruits or to the meats that we eat, mm. we really have uh, emphasized quantity over nutritional quality and this mm. you know when you eat these berries in the landscape they're not just sweet and they're not mm. bland at all they have a pungence and a a uh a tartness and a it's fantastic experience of mm. of the flavors and it's that phytochemical richness that right, a person's right. getting that you don't get in modern food systems huh? here in the states and i'm pretty certain reading review papers that have been written out of the uk as well by scientists the um, the flavors of foods are typically very bland. They look great often. Strawberries, tomatoes here in the in the mm. grocery store look great, but they're very bland. Or mm. the other extreme I'm seeing with some of the oranges is they're very very sweet, but there's no there's no phytochemical richness that just that really reaches out and grabs those uh, taste and flavor buds in our mouths. And to me, that's that's what's uh, that's what's what's happened. Then is that the integrity of those foods from their wild forms has really yeah. been dumbed down. And the I same with meats yeah. too. The same with meats. You know, if yeah. animals are eating phytochemically diverse diets as opposed to grain fed in a feedlot, the uh, the biochemical richness of meat and milk are much diminished compared yeah. with with uh as i talk about in the book yeah. with with phytochemically rich diets and so all that's influencing our nutrition and health as well well it's like it's like layers of layers of monotony isn't it like what what you have is these massive fields growing nothing but maize or, or other grains and then and then and then we feed animals that would have eaten a massive diversity of plants left to their own devices they're now being fed one plant and we end up with this meat and, and it's like there's a steak on the plate and, and that's come from that kind of production system. And then one that's come from grass fed on, on a semi-wild semi -wild landscape. You know, they look the same 
and yet they couldn't be more different. Like, I mean, I was just reading your bit there about the, the paper you sent across to me just now, um, and that was really bringing home the 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 fact of um, what the diverse diet that's biochemically rich does in terms of the the um, the meat, I don't know, I haven't managed to quite retain the information, but there was something about like the risks that people talk about in terms of heart disease and so on for eating red meat is probably not the case at all with these, with these meats where, where the, um, the, the, the antioxidants or the chemicals from the plant somehow, they're actually changing the character of that meat in terms of how it would interact with our bodies. That's the gist of it, Miles, that, that's yes. for certain. Uh, and we, take a lot of time to to try to develop those those points throughout the paper but that's it when it comes to uh, many of the diseases that are are linked through epidemiological studies with with eating red, red meat, meat yeah. from heart disease and cancer to uh, to diabetes and a variety of different disease states you know that's all based on the idea that meat is meat is meat and the point in right. this paper is that that that's not the case the diets no. the animals are eating are fundamentally influencing meat the biochemical characteristics of meat and dairy and if these diets are coming from really biodiverse landscapes mm -hmm. um that has benefits for their nutrition and health and then benefits for our nutrition and health on the other hand, as you point out, when we have these vast monocultures of, of plants that, that underlie the diets of livestock, we really uh, diminish biodiversity at that level across those, those huge monoculture fields. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, the phytochemical characteristics of the meat are, are greatly diminished, we argue, in that paper as well. Yeah. So this, this, this enables me nicely to jump onto a sort of preformed question. Um, just talking about the industrial food system. Um, so, I mean, this is more of a kind of, it's not really a question, more, more like a, this is a statement that, that, that I would like you to uh, react to. So I would characterize industrial food and problems that arise from it in, in two ways. And I want to know what you think about this, Fred. So firstly, it's a move away from biological complexity to mechanical simplicity, which basically means we've just got singular outputs, whereas, you know, in ecology, we've got many outputs, diverse outputs. So as a result, there's reduced biological and uh, chemical richness and diversity. That's what we've done. We've impoverished the landscape and then we've impoverished the actual food that comes out of it. Um, which means there's a breakdown in health um, of our um, and a breakdown of our culture because like we, when we don't have food diversity, we have an impoverished culture and then it results in, in species extinction. But what I wanted to react to is that to me, this is that we are, are treating organisms as if they were mechanisms. Do, do you think that's a, an accurate? Yes, I... Uh... I couldn't agree more with, with what you're saying at all those levels. And then, then I think um, we end up paying the price. There's, right. there's costs to be paid for that in terms of increased use of, of antibiotics and medicines. Whereas, yeah. um, you know, food, uh, as was said ages ago, food really is the medicine when it's phytochemically diverse it's, and biochemically rich. 
It's meeting our, our needs, not only for nutrients, but at the cellular level, the cell can only forage on what we put into our bodies. And if it's yep. phytochemically rich, the cell can maintain its health. That's surely how I view that. Those little capillaries are just little streams and the cells can only forage on what we, we do. And if we're in a system <laughs> that's been hijacked yeah. so that we're, we're addicted basically to highly processed kind of foods that in one way or another, it's basically the same kind of ingredients we simply change the flavors and we don't even do that with with phytochemically rich kind of ingredients. It's it's more things that, that are, are manufactured. Um, we pay the price. We pay the price in terms of health and all our reliance on, on uh, drugs like antibiotics. We pay the price in terms of all the herbicides and pesticides that we apply to landscapes mm. attempting to, to maintain monocultures and... Uh, you know, yeah. the, the, the horrors of, of really, in many ways, poisoning ourselves um, and that's, with, that's, with all the pesticides we apply. Yeah, um, unfortunately, that's the only chemical diversity that does actually occur on, a, on an industrially farmed field, isn't it? We, we actually have a diversity <laughs> yeah. of poisons. Yes. No, there is. It's Rachel, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring certainly be, being manifest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just it's got worse since she was writing because the, 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 the findings I was reading last year, people are saying, OK, so even if you believe what these guys say, and obviously we don't, but like they're saying, oh, well, glycosphate is safe and this is safe and that's safe. But what they real what we're realizing now is that it's the interactions of these toxins, which nobody's done any studies on that. They don't have any stitched up, you know, biased peer reviewed science to give the cocktail of poisons that we get when we, when we industrially farm foods, a clean bill of health, you know, because nobody's looked at that, but, but it's beginning to look as if that's actually worse. The fact that they all interact together to make us sick. Right, right. And as you say, who's who's really had a chance yet to to thoroughly look at that? But what has been looked at, for instance, in terms of glyphosate, it's it really is uh, it's frightening to think about the implications of that and the, the levels at which that and then, as you point out, many, many other pesticides. I think often, too, Miles, I I wonder how if it's possible to make a change of consciousness in in people at a at a broader scale i i certainly see for instance here in the u.s there's a there's a movement in what's referred to here anyway as regenerative agriculture and it's a grassroots movement that you know it's certainly not everyone that's involved in that it's a small percentage of the population but that is such a powerful powerful movement and, you know, 50 mm. years ago right now, I was working on a ranch in Colorado and I was going to school at Colorado State University majoring in wildlife biology. And at that time, those two worlds, what I was learning about ecology and wildlife biology and the ranching and farming communities, they were light years apart. And I couldn't imagine in those days how they would ever come together. Mm. But nowadays, when you go to these conferences on regenerative ag, it's like sitting in those classrooms 50 years ago, listening to people talk about the importance of biodiversity and, right. and ecology. And, you know, it's, it's marvelous and it's none, it's none too soon. What right. I often yeah. wonder 
So that's a transformation of consciousness, really, from the kind of mechanical mind to the, mm. the as Charlie Massey likes to say, the emergent mind, how the organic okay. mind. What I wonder is, is it possible and how could it be done to get that kind of transformation across, you know, here in the United States, less than 2% of the people are involved in agriculture and a small percentage of those are in this regenerative ag movement. Is it possible to somehow to get the other 98% of people to, to change the way that they're looking at, at systems? And I think food, since everybody eats, food is a great way. Let, let me give you one example here. For mm. instance, in the, in the areas where, where we've lived, where we've been living in towns, you know, people love to have here in, in the, the U.S., I think in general, love to have these manicured lawns, um, right. beautiful, in our part of the world, Kentucky bluegrass <laughs> yeah. lawns that are simply monocultures of, of one species. Um, if point. one dandelion what, what sticks its beautiful what, little yellow head out, we're going to spray it with, with yeah. uh, 2,4-D and so forth. Yep. And that's what's beautiful in the in the eye of the beholder. And it's at great, great cost in the arid west, the amount of, of uh, water that we put on, the yeah. amount of fossil fuels that we use to mow those lawns, the amount of yeah. herbicides that we put on. It's horrendous when you when you look at how much yeah. of that. And so I wonder, is it possible to ever get people to think about what native plants used to grow where my lawn grows? Yeah. And how could we develop uh, a sense of the beauty of those and how they change seasonally from spring to summer to autumn? And then in addition to that, maybe get growing a person's own um, vegetable, herbal, medicinal gardens as little little places within within that those native plant communities as a way to change the consciousness of people not just in a small subset of agriculture but in the larger population of people to um i i think that very often um and wonder uh where my wife and i live in in Innes, Montana now, we have not a large property, about an acre and a half, three yeah. quarters of a hectare or so. Uh, but we have really tried to, to do that, to just simply uh, encourage the native plant species and the beauty of those species. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we have a little bit of area that, that has some, some grass that the people who used to own this had it, but it's a small part. And on most of that, we're now changing and put, putting in herbal vegetable, medicinal kinds of gardens. Mm. And uh, I don't know what the neighbors think for sure, whether they think we're kooks or what, but, and, but it's trying to get at what we see as beauty and how we see our relationship with communities. And, you know, with a natural community, you don't have to irrigate it. You don't have to apply pesticides. You don't have to do anything because right. that's what grows there you just have to encourage it and and develop a sense of the beauty of that and and the biodiversity of it too the tremendous number of different species of grasses forbs and shrubs that grow there and i i wonder that for here in the u.s i w would wonder it for i know you've thought about and talked about with others of those kind of relationships um in in the environments where where you live as well 
Well, I, I just think, you know, what you've just described there, it, it, it just makes me think it's hard work working against something, you know, like these, these, these guys are really trying to, they're like trying to push a rock uphill, really, like to, you know, you've got to spray these things, you, you know, because they're not robust, you've got to then irrigate them and, and so on. And, and all the time you're working against something which is trying to work for you. That's, that's how I see it. Like when you're trying to get rid of, um, I mean, I can only think of one species that is at all likely to grow in a lawn, um, at least in the UK, that isn't a good wild edible. There's many, many species which, which will grow in your lawn, which are good wild edibles. And here are you putting all this effort and money and time into, into getting rid of those things, which actually, when you understand what they are, they're tasty and they're full of chemicals which will make you healthy and probably stop you getting sick. And I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm these days, because I think more about that, you know, when I first discovered wild plants, um, I just thought it was fascinating. It was just fun and like a, an adventure. I, I didn't think too much about like the health implications at all to begin with. But having become more aware of that, I think that's a great way to um, just introduce it to people because you know nobody wants to get these diseases of modern life and you just start dropping it into the conversation that well you know all the all the plants that grow in your lawn if you don't spray them they're delicious salads they'll um put you in good stead to, to to be less likely to get heart disease and cancer and all this kind of thing i yeah i think there's a lot of scope for just gathering people in really into you know especially to, do you know what i just think these days there is more and more interest. It's, it's perhaps the circles I move in, but I think people are more and more interested in changing their diet. You know, like I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago, people were much more conservative about food. It seems to me like there's been, um, we're almost like in a state of flux, you know, that the rules have been broken down and, and people are actually looking to have some new information you know that this this uh, and i know i know you you tackle this in a sense like the negative side that people are constantly neurotic about you shouldn't eat this kind of food or should eat that kind of food but i think if we if we take it to the next level of saying well actually the point is that that um the uh the real foods the whole foods and the wild foods are just beneficial and if we just take that as a rule of thumb rather than looking at the nutrient contents and so on you know that we we have a, an interest and an appetite in the in the public at large to to um to be informed about this sort of stuff and at the same time there's there's also an appetite for the cultural side you know the experience of gastronomy and and um you know the chef has been elevated in a way which was just no one would have anticipated i don't think i don't know if you've noticed that fred but like for me, seeing how the celebrity chef is now like um, almost a god, you know, that, that can decree things, you know, eat this, don't eat that, you know, cook like this, don't cook like that. And, and, and the fact is, a lot of those guys are using that position in an incredibly helpful and, and powerful way to encourage an interest in, in, for example, wild plants. That's a wonderful thing. I, I, I think... You know, at the one level, certainly in industrial agriculture, um, there's such opportunities for, for a change away from the emphasis on quantity to really nutritional quality and health. The population at large, such wonderful opportunities. It's fantastic to hear 
what you're talking about relative to to chefs and and the roles and influences that they can play um it's it's and it it is a great time because i think people really are uh questioning in many ways um you know what it means to be healthy um even folks that i know that that might not um think about or talk about what we're talking about when when they start to talk about all of the drugs that they're on or that they're taking and mm. all of the side effects of those things and you can just see a concern and a worry in their voice and you know um Anytime I've been to the hospital, I had my hip replaced here at the end of July. And when you tell them, no, I'm not on any drugs, they say it's unheard of nowadays. Well, (laughs) you know, if a person keeps their body fit um, and you're eating wholesome foods, there there really is no need to be on this plethora of drugs that... uh, you know, and we know going back to what we, you and I have been talking about on, on simplicity versus complexity, the yeah. more we, when we extract and purify uh, compounds from plants, we amplify their effects. Same with, with drugs. And, you know, there's certainly times when that can be beneficial, but in many, many cases, the side effects, the downstream effects are really harmful on us. What mm-hmm. bodies, I think, evolved doing was, uh, utilizing this vast array of uh, compounds that are out there in natural systems, and the more diverse the diet, I think. In, so you mean the, you wouldn't have ever ingested that compound in isolation, basically? No, no, you know it would have been impossible to ever to ever do that, and yet that's exactly what the industrial model is. I think compounds like high fructose corn syrup and so forth. You simply extract and purify and then you amplify effects and and bodies just don't deal well with that you know it leads to addiction there's evidence certainly uh, in the literature that sugar is addicting Um, Mm. there's evidence of course uh, ample i was visiting with uh, with a lady who does this kind of research just yesterday on all the drugs of course and and again, cocaine, for instance, I've read that you can chew on a cocoa leaf all day long and it's mildly stimulating. But when you extract and purify, then you get the addicting kind of properties. And that's a lot. I think what we've done with with processed foods is extract, purify, hit people with a blast of energy. And that's that's really uh, reinforcing going back to our flavor feedback yeah. um, notion. And so it's it's easy to get to get people hooked on that and then even worse you know if if mother is pregnant and she's eating a diet of that those kind of foods the right. young offspring starting in the womb is is becoming hooked on those kind of things kids even born with metabolic syndrome which is really stunning to kind of think of that that yeah. uh, their organ systems have been have been molded from their pancreas right on through the mm. liver and kidneys and so forth to to deal with this highly processed uh, to cope with it, this highly processed diet. Yeah. So the systems get hijacked. Then how the systems get that's how the systems get hijacked. Whereas that is a, so that system is it, um, that's one of my favorite things that you talk about actually. The, the, that system of like the maternal diet affecting the um, infant in the womb. And then subsequently through breast milk, if, if she's breastfeeding, 
that that is a really positive and functional thing that that um, enables the the body of the child to to, to become accustomed to um, phytonutrients and 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 compounds from 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 the mother's diet, which um, basically it gets a head start and becomes acclimatized and has this positive reinforcement that like okay that's good stuff we like that and and it's more likely to be um open to uh, ingesting things which um if the mother doesn't eat those things uh, it, it might have difficulty and and um i've got this great example um from um, a trip i made to denmark for this wild food festival and I met a guy who was telling me about his, I think his seven-year-old or eight-year-old or something. Anyway, this this lad who, when they went out foraging, he would be grabbing wild garlic leaves, which are really, you know, it's, that's a challenging flavor to eat one whole. You know, it's 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 a it's a strong flavor. But he was eating these wild garlic leaves just by the handful, so that he had, you know, and so enthusiastically he kind of had green juice dripping down his chin, and. I had to ask the guy, I said, look, did your, did your wife eat a lot of wild plants and including wild garlic when she was pregnant and, and breastfeeding? And he said, you better believe it. We, we're really into this stuff. And we very consciously, you know, we felt it would be a good idea for her to eat as much as possible whilst pregnant. And so that, that kid has now got an ability to ingest things, which, which most adults, me included, probably wouldn't pick up a handful of wild garlic and eat it. And yet it's amazingly powerfully beneficial to, to your body to do that. That's a fascinating example, Miles. And it, 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 you know, in and of itself, one could say, well, you know, maybe that's a one-off. But there's so much research that really right. backs up what, what you're talking about and the yeah. functional significance of that. And, you know, in the one chapter in the book that's talking about uh, self-medicating in nature's pharmacy, I reflect as you were there on, you know, I I, um, I wasn't raised in a, in a family um, that would have been using uh, medicinal plants as a part of, of of what we what we did and so forth. And so you wonder about those linkages and how they get get broken and and. The lack of knowledge that my body might ordinarily have had if it had been exposed to that. And I'm not criticizing my parents, of course, in saying that. The other thing I think about, too, is the power of that. And you'll know this from reading the book, but some of the studies we did on experiences in utero and how that changes, just as, as it did in the young lad, um, liking for, for foods and how much of those foods that, that the animal will eat and then the studies we did on early life where animals were exposed to a, to a food that's really important as a winter food during, um, you know, when, when there's not a lot of good available alternatives available. So sort of kind of poor quality food, which would be the norm during the, the winter time. But those animals are exposed for just a couple months early in life, and they didn't even see this, this food for, for another five years. And then... Right. Throughout that three-year trial, they ate significantly more of the food. They were in body weight and body condition. They bred back better. You know, it just lets you know the power of those experiences to not only change liking for the flavor of the food, but as we showed in different studies, it changes how organ systems function from liver and kidneys to the gut to the central nervous system. 
All that is goes back to that statement that that linked you so much. That's how palettes get linked functionally to, with yeah. landscapes. Yeah, I just want to clarify that, that they were compared with animals that hadn't had that early experience. Is is that what that's right? Natural? That's absolutely right. Yeah. They were compared with animals that hadn't had that that experience, and uh, absolutely just performing totally differently. You know, even though it was the same. Same breed, same age, same sex, same on, so, on all those all those fronts, except the one group had had that experience for a couple of months early in life. The other group had never even yeah. seen seen the uh, straws, what we were feeding, basically, which is a poor quality food that can help animals get through the winter. But mm. amazing differences in terms of that in utero, if you combine the in utero plus early life experiences, <laughs> it's really preparing the animals to to live in the environments um, that will be exposed to them practically over here in the United States. Why that's so important is that when you look at the costs of of ranching of of the ranching operations, most of those are tied up in feeding animals during the winter because people have to irrigate, cut, bale, haul hay, and then and then feed it, and all the machinery. It's huge expense. So if you can have a locally adapted herd that doesn't that you don't need to feed wow. that can make it on their own that can that that you can wow. provide then you're, the cost yeah. just the cost plummet for for all of those kind of things it goes back to what you were saying earlier yeah. too relative when we were talking about natural plant communities and so forth we we probably inadvertently end up working ourselves to death when in right. fact we would just go with what's, yeah. you know, go with native plants, go, go with locally adapted animals. We, we wouldn't have to work like, like yeah. crazy uh, at so many things. Okay. So well that, that means because I, I only read half of this thing about industrial food characterized. So I said this thing about, you know, it's organisms being treated like mechanisms, but here's the second characterization that, that, I'd like to just briefly explore because it fits bang into what you just said there. The industrialized food systems and farming and so on, it's, it's a move from trust to control because what you're saying there is that like, if, if we, there's this, I mean, there's two things going on there. One is that the landscape is providing food. And the other is that the maternal, um, the way in which the, the mother's diet influences the uh, infant's diet is basically plugging that individual in to the landscape whereas whereas one that's not had that induction through through the maternal influence is unable to to work with that landscape so there's there's uh, but but the point is either way we trust number one that the landscape is providing food even though to the to the um feedlot cattle there wouldn't be food because they wouldn't be able to engage with it and number two that there's a biological system that is going to enable we can trust that biological system to to enable the animal to then dig down into what's available but i suppose the thing i'd like to tack on at the end which we haven't mentioned i don't think yet is that it goes on beyond the uh, the mother's um like biologically passing on that knowledge through through the womb and the breast milk but you you say a lot about there's like maternal elders in the herd who have a much more uh stronger knowledge of, of the plants and the landscape and they also pass that through as a function of culture which i think is absolutely fascinating so so we've got landscapes to trust we've got bodies to trust 
and we've got this amazing thing that emerges called culture um and 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 both those culture and the biological thing being mediated through um basically the female elders in the herd but anyway the point is there's a lot to trust there isn't there and and, and like we, we we give that opportunity up instead of trusting we think oh no 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 we're better we better make this happen and work ourselves to death, as you said. Couldn't agree more with with what you said and how nicely you you said that, Miles. Uh, you know, I think if you think of of modern food systems compared to what would have been historically, uh, right. the trust has been broken. I, as you know, in the book, I talk a lot about authority figures, and uh, and I I've. I've never been a cynic or, and I'm, I'm still not, but I, you know, what's happened within societies, I think a lot of, we've put our trust in authorities and, uh, you know, whether that be academic, political, uh, corporate kind of authority figures. And I don't, I really don't think they've had our best interests at heart. And so really it's a time now to, um, to take ownership of that again, um, mm. from the wisdom of the body through to the cultures that we create. Uh, it, it was fascinating to me over the years to to look at this relationship between mother and offspring and then to think about and realize that in, in so many of the, the large mammals, they actually live in extended families, and that includes cattle, sheep, and goats, the domesticated uh, varieties. Yeah. If you let them go feral, they, they end up in extended families. Um, and they're matrilene, matrilene so that, that means the matriarch is really plays a fundamental role in those, mm. those societies. But as do, you know, all, all of the individuals in those societies play roles. Um, and it's, it's a dynamic kind of thing. I've often thought about how neat it is that certainly offspring are learning from mother in all the ways we've talked about, but offspring will often bring new information into the group because they're exploring and they're doing things. So it's an ongoing dynamic that keeps animals uh, really linked in in functional and co-evolving ways with the landscapes they inhabit. And you have the, the roles of the of the that the, the uh, young animals are playing then, the more mature animals, the females, the males. And uh, it's, it's really intricate. And we've, we've really not paid attention to that, uh, certainly in, in domestic animals. That's not even a, a thing that's, that's known, basically, uh, when you talk with people. People talk forever about their genetics, the importance of my genetics. What I try to get people thinking about is their epigenetics, the, their genes being expressed in those environments as a function of interactions with the social and biophysical environments. That that's really what what you've got is that that culture. And then we've, you know, historically as a species, we we did live in extended families and clans, and there were. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing to get into the anthropological literature and realize the different roles that, that were played and including by the, the and this I'm saying this because it's true in in these uh, in these other uh, large herbivores and in the cetaceans, yeah. they talk about this, these postmenopausal menopausal, uh, females 
they say, well, they're not contributing anymore in terms of offspring, but that's what they're pointing out is that's, that's only part of what's key here. What's really key is their knowledge of those landscapes uh, over, over many, many years of knowing, you know, if we get into this really tough situation, we need to go here in the landscape or, or whatever. But that, that knowledge um, and uh, some of the work that's been done with the, the elephants in Africa just really, really points that out. Those old, old wise matriarchs and families that are, are uh, a part of, of, of that are, are just so, so well uh, linked in with their landscapes. Oh, boy. And, and, and the thing is, like, we've done a lot of thinking. We, we've got a group over here called the Association of Foragers, and we spent a, a a, a day in the woods last year trying to just nail down like a a very succinct way to to describe what we're what what we're what we're actually doing you know what is it we're really doing and we we came up with this phrase which which does seem to nail it it's restoring vital connection yeah absolutely vital huh vitals exactly beautiful yeah it's the food vitals being food or your guts and you know it's there's you can go a lot a lot of different ways with that and so we we're very happy with it as a, as a kind of point and 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 to, but, but why would we need to restore it though that's the thing this is a this is a situation where we're trying to do something remedial you know we're trying to bring and and, and you talk about those elders those elephant elders with that knowledge that is a vital connection and and the thing that's that, that gets me worked up is the idea that there is this sabotage that's going on there is this gratuitous hacking away at, at bonds which exist between species and landscape and cultures and landscapes that's so terrible you know that, 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 that these things are so functional and life-giving they are life-giving connections um, but I suppose it starts with being able to recognize and see the value because unless somebody had stood still and watched in the way that they have to to, to draw out these points about those um, elders in the herds as you've done in these people studying the elephants we wouldn't even see what we were doing you know it's just like treading on an ant and you don't notice you know to, to know that those things are so that those connections are so life-giving um then it's only when we recognize that that we can start seeing um you know, because obviously i i want to extrapolate from that to the to the the loss of our food culture you know we, we've we've got that kind of vital connection and, and, and it's like if you look at pre-farming food culture that's, that's looking at wild plants and landscapes, you know, we're basically looking at what's happening with uh, indigenous elders now. And like I know in a lot of communities, like the kids are not learning from the elders. They, they just can't see the point, you know. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I know a guy that's documenting stuff in, um, in Australia. He's going around talking to the elders and trying to get their plant knowledge down for them not for us for them so that they have it in their communities for future generations but it's just so tragic because he talks about when one of these elders dies they they take that knowledge with them if he hasn't got there and and, and uh, anyway that's that's a bit gloomy that but oh but it's absolutely absolutely the case and you know it just puts the emphasis and i'd say this is probably one of the things that that our program did over 40 years more more than anything was 
to put the emphasis away from genes, you know, in the days that we started, certainly people appreciated that wild wild species had all these abilities we're talking about, really, or they wouldn't they wouldn't be around. There's no welfare systems for them. So that, but it was understood that it was in the genes. It's it's somehow they just know. I think what our work really emphasized so much that relates to what you're saying is. It's not just in the genes, it's learned. There's this whole huge aspect of learning, which you've been talking about learning and culture. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazingly powerful, beautiful thing. And it's what allows animals to co-create in ever-changing environments. The downside, like we're saying, is that that can be lost in a generation. It can be totally wiped out. And so, um, as you're saying, one, appreciating that that's the case, and then two, thinking about, well, what what have we lost? And then where the hope comes in, as, as we've been talking, is, okay, so what can we do about it? Then hope leading to action, not just hope, yeah. um, hope with it, but hope leading to action and the kind of things that, that the wonderful things that you're involved in, um, I see that as just fundamental and and I think so important to not to sound like a broken record, but you know certainly regenerative ag and that movement is is fundamentally important um in in all of this and that that awakening that's taking place in that group but then how how to get people across landscapes the the billions of us to thinking about that and thinking about how in our own little place, in our own little role, can we link ourselves back in healthy ways with landscapes and create healthy landscapes um, in whether it's our little tiny yard or acre or five acres or hectare or whatever it is, how we can can remake that in the image of natural plant communities to to provide food and habitat for us and for the uh, the many 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 species above and below ground that that only live when we're not applying all these herbicides and pesticides and monocultures and uh, and anybody can do that where where we live here we've planted so many different species of native of native um, shrubs that produce berries. Uh, you know, 150, 200 of them in trees. And so any, I'm not saying that is something, you know, like, oh, do what we do. But just saying it to say anybody can do those kind of things huh, to, in their uh, in their landscapes. And, and we can transform from really monoculture kind of landscapes and simplicity to biological complexity and, and healthy kinds of uh, food producing landscapes for us and for all these creatures above and below ground. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think it's that that people, um, I think, inevitably will move back to being involved in the in producing their own food. And I mean, that's the big issue, really, because to me, like the, the idea of, of feedback mechanisms is, is is so essential to this. When when people, you know, the whole industrial thing is basically just cutting that out. You know, we're we're not getting. We're not even getting the feedback mechanisms of our body. We can't listen to that. But we've got no idea about where the food came from and what the effect on, on the surroundings are. Um, 
and as soon as people start actually deriving um, stuff that they consume from their immediate surroundings, that creates an amazing link. It, you know, when you've picked a dandelion from your lawn, you'll never see your lawn in the same way again. And when you've gathered berries from the hedgerow, you know, you'll, you'll forever, you know, you, you, you create a, um, a biological, well, a molecular link. You then you've got molecules from the hedgerow in your own body, but you've got memories, you've got emotions around that. And all of these things gradually weave people into their surroundings in, in a way that used to be totally normal. I mean, you know, I, I say this thing to, we've, we've done a little bit of work with taking kids foraging and, and I've come up with the first question I always ask them is where does food come from? And, you know, the switched on ones will say, oh, it comes from the farm or the really switched ones will, switched on ones will say it comes from the land or the sea, you know. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind, I'm asking this to kids in rural communities. I probably wouldn't get that answer if I asked kids in the city. But anyway, I'm, I'm always waiting for an answer I know that I'll never come up with in a thousand years. The answer that, that I've got is food comes from here. And every squirrel, every ant, every other living creature knows that. That food just comes from where you are. You know, the idea that it's been shipped across the world through global transport and an industrial process of production, that just doesn't come into it. You know, for every other species, food just comes from here. So... Um, for me, the, the idea of just getting people to forage a little bit so that they experience again what it is for food to come from here. Because for me, it's like another level. Uh, I, I, I definitely hail the cultivation of, of plants locally for food. I subscribe to an organic box scheme myself. But I'm just very conscious of the, the different quality of the relationship I have to landscape when I eat something wild, you know. That, that is, that's the land own production and then i'm responding to that and and there's a kind of bond that exists between um us and the landscape when we when we're when we're taking it as we find it almost um anyway that's 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 for me like a, a step that pretty much anyone can take but it's like it's it's got to be um it's got to be well what i'm going to say is that thing i referred to earlier is is uh, really important about the chefs, some of the chefs starting to embrace wild foods because they put a value on this stuff. You know, it, it might've been just weeds, you know, almost like problem species that are a bit like homeless people and refugees, you know, like very badly thought of by the majority of people. Outcasts, you know, the outcasts of the plant world, they're just weeds. But when a chef puts it on his plate and it's, um, part of a, a dish that's an expression of high gastronomy, all of a sudden the, the values are reversed. So I see that again as a very, very positive move that people can start seeing eating wild food as almost a luxury activity. Just Absolutely the case. And you know, the parallel that comes to mind as you say that is uh, the emphasis in agriculture on monoculture pastures for, um, for livestock. We select for certain uh, species that produce uh, a lot of growth phytochemically. We've selected against the compounds that are in those plants. So they're phytochemically more, more depauperate really so that we can grow them in monoculture and anything yeah. else in that pasture is viewed as a weed. Uh, yeah. It's really a, a nice parallel between the human food system that goes toward processed kind of monoculture 
food and anything that's phytochemically rich and different is viewed as a weed. And it's, uh, we need chefs, uh, as we talk about in, in the shepherding book that I wrote with Michel Medet in France, we need okay. uh, chefs and shepherds who become ecological doctors, uh, in a sense, huh? Yeah. yeah. Creating the health of, of peoples on peoples and animals in landscapes. Wonderful. Well, I think um, we're trying, aren't we? We're, we're trying to edge it back in the right direction. Right. And that's all anyone can do. Huh? But when there's a passion and a belief and, a, and what seems to us uh, at least to be, to be something of, of real value for the health of, of really the ecosystems in all their manifestations, including us as a part of that, um, then that's that's the best we we can do. How huh? we intend the intend intend the good and try the very best that we can uh, out of the the beliefs and the importance of of what we're talking about for the health uh, the health of the planet. Really, is how I think of it uh, anymore. Um, uh, fundamental if we're gonna um, if we're gonna remain as a species on this on this planet I, it seems to me what we're talking about is so fundamental to to all of that yeah. we yeah we, uh, we've just got to keep trying to edge it close to the mainstream and hope people pick up on it i mean you, you can see how things have turned around in the past that you i guess people were tearing their hair out about acid rain back in the 70s and you know the, the action was taken on that cfc is another example Right, right. So, so we we know that that the cultures can change, huh? Cultures yeah. can change. So, that's exactly it. The question is whether we can, as nine billion of us, return to a really functional fit with our environment, whereby, um, the way I put it is to, you know, that we can actually be providing net benefits because it just it, like to me. Hunter-gatherer societies were enhancing the landscape. They were acting like a, a keystone species. Um, we're obviously hugely to the detriment of the landscape and indeed to our own health. With they were doing things just now, but I'm I'm really trying to push the idea um, as you know, exploring and, and thinking: is this possible? You know, that we could change things, change how we do everything, so that we end up providing net benefits rather than this sort of. To me, most things are, are like a damage limitation exercise. We'd, we'd, we'd say, okay, so this is slightly less damaging than industrial agriculture, but is it the same as as you know a biodiverse landscape without us there? You know, my question is, can we go right back into the wild, as it were, but so that we're not um, um, in any way detracting from the the biodiversity of the landscape? And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, well, it definitely doesn't mean we go back to the old hunter-gatherer ways as as exact replicas, but like to go back to that relationship that we work, everything is organism, not mechanism. Everything is 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 about trusting the, the wild system. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm wanting to explore that and see how far we can take it, Fred. You know, oh, I think it's fundamentally important because it'll it'll. If we can do that, it'll it'll enact a transformation of consciousness relative to our relationships to the environments. And as we say, and the, the reason it seems to me what we were talking about earlier is so important, it can happen one one family, one right. one yard, one one property at a time. How we're, we're um, we move away from simple.
complexity toward uh, linking ourselves with 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 the with our little property where we live and and thinking about the native species and biodiversity and encouraging that as opposed to monoculture and thinking about you know we can identify really healthful varieties of vegetables and fruits we can grow those yeah. in a, in our property we can grow herbs the the power of herbs the healing power of herbs and then you know Absolutely. handful yeah. of medicinal plants like i talk in the book that that can be used and so you know all those i think are ways that each individual can start to link back and mm -hmm. to me that's what starts to make the notion of nine billion um, as you say, you know, probably nine billion hunting, hunting and gathering, uh, totally for their sustenance. Maybe that doesn't work. I, but but you know, knowing the plants that are in the environment seasonally and and what can be um, delightful berries to to pick and savor, or and as you you're saying, um, the greens that come from those, as well as as working in a person's own property. All those are ways to really enact a transformation of consciousness uh, relative to what we're talking about. I really picked up on your point earlier where you talked about plants, when you discovered plants. I, I had been raised, my mother loved plants, and she loved to grow them in the yard. So I was raised around that. But yeah. when I really discovered plants was when I took the uh, plant ID class in, in college. And I went out, and we had to pick 50 plants. And mount them on our barium sheets and so forth. And I, it just, it totally transformed my world. It just, it, wow. it just flipped it on, on end. And I, I, uh, it was just amazing to me. It was just absolutely flabbergasting to see the beauty of all those species. And I'd been, I'd never, it was like I was blind. I was blind until Till that course, and after that, I I never ever looked at landscapes the same. They just they came alive to me. The beauty of all those yeah. different species. It's and you know that that transformation can occur anywhere. And then you think all that links to biodiversity and to the health of of organisms below ground, above ground, and uh, you know move away from this monoculture Kentucky bluegrass in our case out here in the western U.S. to to the to the beauty of biodiversity, and then the fact that you don't have to do anything once you get that reestablished on your property. Um, when my wife and I were living in the backwoods of Colorado, there was just tremendous diversity of species, and it beauty beauty around you from spring through 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 the late fall, and of course in the winter too. But and we didn't have to do one thing other than just enjoy it you know we didn't have to do anything it it's and that's a transformation of consciousness really i think to appreciating well, that i i just wonder if it doesn't fit into what 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 you were saying earlier it just suddenly made me think about this uh, business of epigenetics you know like we must have an innate capacity and and tendency to 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 know the species that are around us in, in all these different ways you know to recognize them to interact with them and to feel joy when we see them. I mean, that must be innate, but like for most people, it's just not switched on. I think that's true, Miles. And I'll tell you why I think that. I've been in the woods in the spring of the year 
I've taken people there who, who really come from city backgrounds. They, they have no experience of these kind of things. And when you start walking around and just pointing out all the different species um, and, you know, I, I know the names of them, so you can say, well, this is such and such and so and so and so forth. Um, people love that. They, they just they, they they love looking at, at the beauty, at the, at the beauty of all those different species. So I think that's there. That's just built into into us that that appreciating that incredible beauty. I agree with you. I agree with you. And so it's, it's latent, huh? It needs to be switched on, switched on. And I, I remember uh, being on a hike with a person since, you know, uh, all these different species and stuff and, and knowledge of those. And this was a person kind of naive to all of this saying, you know, that you could spend, forever taking people just on hikes and, and exposing them to the beauty of all that. Uh, yeah. And it would be a, a really uh, tremendous thing. And I thought, yeah, that, that's right. And it relates to what you're saying, just switching that on, huh? just switching that awareness as happened with you and with me too. Huh? And I was uh, in, in college that, that, that year in college, I, it was there, but I it just needed switched on. Yeah, and that's the it's the role of it's the role of culture, isn't it? I just think I'm just more and more these days realizing, um, uh, you know, and it comes across really strongly in your book that, that, like, you have this thing, don't you, with the three legs of the stool? You you were you were you were saying about um, do you want to just say about that? Just cause it kind yeah, of yeah, like, which we've really been talking about in wonderful ways. The flat, the three legs of the stool of nutritional wisdom and linking palates with landscapes would be the flavor feedback relationships, the importance of biodiversity to enabling that. You know, you can have the, the basic mechanism, but without the diversity, uh, it can't be enabled in terms of nutrition and medicine and all that. And then yeah. the third is what we've been talking about in such good ways, the whole social cultural part that, 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 has to become a part of the culture and when it's lost from the culture as you're pointing out in Africa and I've read about those same things you know the kids couldn't care less about that knowledge of these hundreds of plants that their elders have they want to take on quote the western ways oh my gosh what a what a terrible terrible loss at this point in at any yeah. point in time but especially at this point in time so yeah those are the three what seems to me to be the three fundamental legs that that link pellets with with landscapes. Um, yeah. th that's yeah. what's critical, and and really we've broken all three of those linkages yeah, here in, in in the West, I think. Yeah, but well, here we are. Yeah, here we are. Right, that's... and the hope is what what you're talking about, what we're talking about, huh? Yeah. It's been lost. Okay, it can be regained, and we we have some good ideas how how to do that, huh? With something as simple as just taking. I'm thinking too. Uh, you're making me, th you know, so taking kids into the woods and sw getting switched on. How huh? when I, we had a program at Utah State, ten-year program, the last ten years of my career called Behave. One of the things we did was just getting kids from schools come out to to where we lived and growing gardens. They'd plant the gardens, um, and then my wife would would grow them during the summer when the kids were off and then the fall the kids would come back and they'd take their their all that had been produced to the pick it take it to the local um, to the local 
markets where people could come and get that uh, for free and stuff. And so just trying to get, get young people linked back in with that. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think it is that simple. You know, there's, there's something, um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote this statement, um, in, 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 in my introduction to my book, Fred, where I was sort of bemoaning in a way that the loss of this knowledge and especially like in our country with, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of, um, traditional knowledge around wild plants and so on. But I kind of rounded it off with a very cheerful statement, which which maybe um, pulls this all together, you know, is that there's such an ancient relationship between us and this plants and the landscape. You know, it is innate. It's, it is. It just needs switching on epigenetically. I've never thought about it that way before. But, um, you know, so the plants are still here. We're still here. We just need to facilitate that contact so that the relationship revives and then and then we're recreating culture to make sure that it, it it's then passed on so maybe that i couldn't agree more I, well, very nicely said i couldn't agree more and then that means for for each of us who who believes there's merit in that and sees the merit of that to as you're doing as we're both doing to to Endeavor to work, help with that, huh? In whatever ways we're able. Yeah. Well, look, it's been fantastic speaking to you, Fred. I, I think we could do this for another three hours. Um, Same for me, Miles. Absolutely yeah. wonderful to to visit with you. I can't wait to get over there and meet you in person. Actually. That's great. Well, we'd love to have you, and um, yeah, I'm going to try and get over your way as well. We, we'll uh, we'll have some exchanges. Fabulous. Okay, so that's it for this week's, um, or this episode rather, of the World Wild Podcast. And um, we'll be back soon.